This is Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition from WGCU. I'm John Davis. Thanks for joining us. The Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra's current performance season continues with this coming Saturday's Masterworks Series concert featuring one of the foremost living violinists in the world, Gil Shaham. Shaham is a highly sought-after soloist for concerto appearances with leading orchestras around the globe. He has more than two dozen concerto and solo recordings under his belt, which have garnered many awards, including multiple Grammys. In 2012, he was named Instrumentalist of the Year by Musical America. This Saturday, September 28th at 7.30, he will perform Samuel Coolidge Taylor's Violin Concerto in G Minor with the Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra, and that concert takes place at the Barber B. Mann Performing Arts Hall in Fort Myers. The concert program will also feature the Southwest Florida Symphony performing the Overture for Mozart's The Magic Flute, as well as Tchaikovsky's Symphony No. 4. Joining me for a closer look at this upcoming performance is the Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra's artistic and music director, Maestro Radu Papanyu. This season marks Papanyu's first official full season with the symphony, and he's just the sixth music director for the organization in its more than six-decade-long history. Maestro Papanyu, welcome back to Gulf Coast Life Arts Edition. Thank you so much for having us back on the, on the show. It's great to be here. We're also rejoined by the Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra's community outreach ambassador, Robert Van Winkle, formerly the chief meteorologist for NBC2. I'll stop introducing you that way eventually. That's okay. I don't mind at all. <laughs> Welcome back to the show, Robert. <laughs> Thank you so much for having us. And to engage with us and your fellow listeners about this conversation or any of our shows, find us on Facebook. We're at WGCU Public Media. And on Twitter, we're at WGCU. Use the hashtag GCL. So just to start off, um, right at the last time we spoke, you had mentioned feeling a, this great sense of connection with musicians with the symphony during your trial week. Now that we're progressing fully through your first official season, have you felt that connection continue? Oh, absolutely. And we just did a, a concert this past Saturday at Barbara Beeman. It was an Elton John show. And once again, I, I felt the same great connection uh, with the musicians. They're all so incredibly supporting. I, I can see they're doing, making music really with great enthusiasm. I could just read it on their faces. And that's why I'm even more looking forward to this week. Absolutely. I know something that must be building that enthusiasm is Gil Shaham. This is an incredible get for the symphony and for Southwest Florida to have him in our area. Now, I know that when you were a student, you had run into him before at like the, the Aspen Music Festival in Colorado. But with this being the first opportunity to conduct him, if I had to imagine what you're feeling as a cocktail, it would be like two parts excitement right. with a splash of intimidation. Like, how are you approaching this? It's definitely, I, I feel it's very, very exciting. And also because I grew up as a violinist, that was what I did for the first 20-something years of my life. And to this day, I still try to play violin whenever I, I have a chance. I was telling Robert, I, I remember being a student in Bucharest in Romania around the times when YouTube became popular for the first time and watching his videos. Yeah. And I even remember very specific pieces that I watched over and over because I find I found him to be so inspiring. And he's without a doubt one of the legendary violinists of our lifetime. And I was I was very fortunate to play in the orchestra at the Aspen Music Festival. And I've also worked as a cover conductor in the past when he has been the soloist, and it will be the, the first time that I get to, to conduct. So I'm very, very excited about that. And I'm feeling a little bit of that intimidation part because uh -huh. uh, my job this week is going to be to chauffeur Mr. Shaham around okay. Southwest Florida. <laughs> so I spent all day yesterday cleaning my car. And, <laughs> and I'm, I'm thinking to myself, what are we going to talk about when <laughs> we're in the car? So 
So uh, I'm going to get Radu to give me some pointers on that. But it's going to be, it's truly exciting. For those of you that don't know Gil Shaham, he is the rock star of the classical music world. I mean, it would be like if I was picking up LeBron James or right. something to, to, you know, come play some ball with us. It's, it's big stuff. And a little insider baseball, I'm curious about how a symphony orchestra goes about booking somebody like Gil Shaham since he's so sought after. Well, it's always a, we, we're looking at a list of names we're interested in inviting, and then it becomes a conversation with their with their managers, dates that are uh, available. Of course, there's a, a financial part of the conversation sure. that, that mm-hmm. is involved uh, as well. But little little by little, as soon as there is an arrangement, we start discussing repertoire, and it's it's a step by step process. But many times, you know, we'll have a full season in pencil, and then because of everyone's availability and things that need to keep, to be shifted around a little bit. Things can change, but we're so happy this this happened, and uh, it's happening in a few yeah. days. It's, it's really a wonderful, wonderful opportunity for the orchestra and to collaborate with him. Yeah, and, and I understand audience members, in addition to getting to hear him perform, could also get the chance to hear this exclusive kind of Q&A between you and him. I'm wondering if the opportunity to do that comes with a concert ticket, or is there something additional folks to do to... That, that's a really great um, insight there, John. Yes, prior to all of our concerts, Maestro Papanyu uh, will be giving a lecture at 6.30? It's 6.30, 6.30. It's for about uh, 30 minutes. Right. And, and, and this is the opportunity. It's included in your ticket. So if you get a ticket oh, to the great. concert, oh. it's, you can come to this as well. So you, you come sit, and, and you've got a really interesting opportunity for a one-on-one with Radu. And also Gil Shaham will be there. And it's really a time for me to get into detail about the pieces we're about to perform as well, and to give a lot of background information and some musical examples, things for the audience members to to pick up on, little triggers. And I think it really enhances if you listen to the lecture. When we finally get to to do the whole performance, you're, you're listening just a little bit differently. Yeah, it helps you be a more active listener rather than listening passively. Well, while we're already on the Gil Shaham topic, I thought we would start by highlighting the piece he's going to play and the composer, and then we can kind of work our way back to the Mozart and the Tchaikovsky. Um, first of all, tell me just a little bit about uh, Coolridge Taylor's story. It's so compelling. It truly was. I did my research on this uh, several weeks ago, and um, he he is he's worth the price of admission just to come hear something that he's composed. He was um, around 1912 when he composed this. His father was a part of a line of freed slaves from the United States that moved back to uh, Europe and Sierra Leone. His mother was uh, poor and lived in the outskirts of London. He had every disadvantage in life when he was a young boy, but his grandfather played violin and started to show him how to play it. And Coleridge Taylor ended up becoming this anomaly in the early 1900s of a of a young black man that could truly play music and compose music. And eventually he was even introduced to the Harvard School of Music in the United States and hailed as the black mauler of his time, which was a tremendous uh, compliment. So this this guy was the real deal. He was also one of the last black classical music composers of his time. Yeah, and he befriended African-American poet Paul Lawrence Dunbar in London and actually set some of his poems to music. Um, it's been said he drew from his Sierra Leonean ancestry yes. and, and music from the African continent. Are, are those influences evident in this violin concerto, do you think? I would say so, absolutely. He really manages to 
to bring elements in, in terms of the inspiration be, behind the musical lines, elements from his background. And what what is truly wonderful, he makes this incredible transition into this Western style of classical music because he understands the language of Western classical music on the highest possible level. And we're really, we're talking about, about a violin concerto, which I would call a standard romantic violin concerto. And many times, because until today, let's say it hasn't quite been part of the standard repertoire. And I think it's part of our mission to correct that because what I think everybody will, will find so enjoyable, even on a first listen, it is an incredibly enjoyable work of music from the very beginning. Some pieces, you know, they're a little bit of an acquired taste. Mm -hmm. This is not the case. This is incredibly virtuosic. He has a true gift for melody, which is particularly evident in the second movement. It's this gorgeous lyrical nocturne. And the form of the piece is very similar to what you would expect in one of the big concertos, a Tchaikovsky violin concerto, Sibelius, or let's say Brook violin concerto, where you have a massive first movement in a pretty brisk tempo, then you have a lyrical, very, very beautiful second movement, and once again, a, a lighter, faster, rondo-like third mm -hmm. movement. And it's also important, I think, to note that this composed uh, piece was first uh, done by a virtuoso vi violinist in her time. He wrote this piece for uh, Maud Powell, a friend mm -hmm. of his. And so we're talking 1912. Here's this woman. She's who, a woman and he's a black man. And, and nobody wants to see either of these demographics succeed in exactly. this industry. Exactly. Yeah. 110 years ago, there they are on stage performing this. And I think it's really neat that we have that opportunity now as well. We have a world-class violinist, a virtuoso coming to play the Samuel Coleridge Taylor piece that his friend played 110 years ago. And this woman couldn't even vote, and right. she was on stage playing this this piece. Yeah. And she, she was truly a pioneer when it comes to violin playing in the United States. And I was mentioning before Tchaikovsky, Sibeli's violin concerto. She introduced those pieces to American audiences, which is also a true testament to her virtuosity. Yeah. Her name was Maud Powell, if yeah. you're interested. And, and on a darker note, this was one of his last compositions mm. before he died at the age of 37. Yeah, pneumonia. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, similar to Mozart. Then right. There is a connection there. There is a little connection. And you had talked about this earlier. I, I had read the piece was kind of lost to obscurity for about 40 years or so, and then it kind of gained a little more popularity around 1980, And um, but maybe it still hasn't quite reached where you might think it should be in terms of its regularity. And that's exactly part of our mission okay. this week. We're trying to, to correct that. <laughs> and does this piece, particularly the cadenza, involve some close coordination between the violin soloist and the percussionist playing the timpani? There's a timpani role, and also the double basses are holding a really long note through, throughout the entire cadenza. I mean, from their point of view, is is it their job to just kind of strap in and, and go along with the ride with the violinist? Are they kind of in control at that point? Or, Well, since they're, we're talking about a roll and a sustained long note, to a certain extent that the soloist still has full freedom on top of that. But it's very, very interesting that they they are involved in, yeah. in that way throughout the entire cadenza. It's really quite unusual, 
I cannot really think of another example of that at the moment. <laughs> all right. Well, and when it comes to just the history of this piece in particular, I understand there were a number of challenges just when it came to the actual physical transportation of the music. Can you tell me about that? Yes, there, there's even a story. Well, it cannot be 100% uh, proved to this day, but the parts were shipped for the U.S. premiere, and some people believed the parts were shipped even on the Titanic. Mm. But the truth is that the, the parts were lost at sea. We can't quite prove that it was the Titanic, but it was around the same, the same dates. What happened, it really delayed the premiere by a few dates. But then, interesting enough, even for the European premiere, they shipped the parts to the wrong address. So even the European premiere was delayed by a few days. And can you imagine back then that would have been, you know, somebody saying, okay, we're three weeks or three months away from our concert and, uh-oh, we don't have the music anymore. They had to actually get down and write it again. Oh, my gosh. I mean, they had to re <laughs> recompose it on paper so that the musicians could practice and read it and perform it. Wow, wow. Yeah. Uh, well, before we move on to exploring the Mozart and Tchaikovsky compositions that are going to be featured in this performance, I'm, I'm curious, um, Maestro, about how you approach curating concert programs, particularly for the Masterworks series. Um, do you have a philosophy towards that? Like, do you like to mix something a little more contemporary with something a little more classic? Or, or does it just really vary from concert to concert? I think that's a wonderful question. And it's a fascinating question. And it's part of the joy of being a conductor. And there's so many, so many ways to go about it. I would say that a word that I find to be essential when talking about this is, is balance. And at the end of the day, you want to have a very balanced program. And sometimes that can mean, even in simple terms, you don't want, for example, to have a second half that has only slow music or only mm -hmm. fast music. That's why even the form of some of these pieces is done a certain way where you have this contrast almost built in. Orchestra size is very, very important and is very important in terms of planning because uh, it affects budget. And when you're looking at a program, you want to know what the limit is also for that uh, particular program. Now, artistically speaking, there, there's so many ways to look at it. Sometimes you might want to have an overarching theme or, that goes over the entire program. Sometimes what works really nicely is to have uh, something chronological where from the first piece to the second piece to the third piece, we're kind of going in chronological order, which also means that the orchestra size is uh, increasing. But all these elements, uh, musical style, musical period, tempo, length, even key, there have been some programs in the past done where every work was in the same key. And mm. then to an audience member, that can become, you don't really know because you're probably reacting to it subconsciously. But after a little while, you, you feel the need instinctually for something a little bit different. Mm. So mm. when I look at building a, a program, I will usually start, I have a big piece in mind that I would like to do. And I start and you working build it around that. Yeah. Or once in a while, you will have a, a soloist that really wants to play something in particular on the first half. And then you can try to work uh, on the program from from that direction. But in every single instance, it's, it's truly a fascinating process because every single time is a little bit 
different. Absolutely. That yeah. sounds like a dream job right to me. I know, right? <laughs> right? Well, um, on the program for Saturday's Masterworks concert, the overture for Mozart's The Magic Flute. Now, the story of this opera is based on German fairy tales. Is it important for the audience to have some understanding of the plot of the opera to, to really appreciate this or not so much? You know, in Mozart's case, almost every single note that he wrote is so wonderful that I would say the music stands mm -hmm. on its own. But it's always, I think, useful and to, to just know a little bit about the, the background of the opera, especially because there's there certain symbols uh, and s certain things that are happening in the piece that you might be wondering how did they get there. And what that brings to mind is the, the first three, three chords in the piece. There is a lot of Masonic symbolism okay. in the opera because both Mozart and the Libertus, the Libertus, Chicanator, they mm -hmm. were both Mason brothers, and three was considered to be a magic number. And then the whole opera starts with three big chords in E flat major, and listen to that. Even the key signature, E flat major, has three flats in the key signature. And, and there's three cherubs that come to, to rescue him. There's three tests that he has to do as the opera continues. There's three There's three columns on the stage. I mean, there's three, 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 three all the way through. And then you, you have a very slow introduction before you get to the main sub subject, which starts, it's, it's quite, it's a little bit darker in spirit and little by little because of the harmonic language, it gets lighter and it's a little bit almost like an initiation from darkness to light, which also can be tied to Masonic circles. Oh, interesting, interesting. Yeah. And uh, we're going to end Saturday's concert with a performance of Tchaikovsky's Symphony Number no. 4 in F minor. Why is this symphony often nicknamed Fate, and, and how does the concept of destiny kind of work its way through the movements of this composition? We, we have the answers straight from, from Tchaikovsky, and this is, is really a fascinating story. And it's right around the time when he wrote the symphony, he became acquainted to one of his big benefactors. And this was a very long relationship. This person fully supported him. Her name was Nadezhda von Mack. And what's really interesting about this as well is that the two never met in person. I think we're talking about a period longer than 10 years. And the whole relationship happened via letters. And the symphony number no. four was dedicated to Nadezhda von Mack. And in a letter to Tchaikovsky, she asks him, uh, she asks, she's asking him, does this symphony have a program? And he starts, you can, you can actually find the whole letter online. It is really, yeah. really fascinating to read. But he, at first he says, I could not possibly put into words the meaning of the music because music can mean so much more. And it's really true about music because on a different day, you can go in a completely different direction in terms of meaning. Well, the headspace you're in before you start might even dictate where you go with it in your own mind. Exactly. Yeah. Even something like your heartbeat yeah. might f be a little faster, which might affect tempo or something like that. But what he continues and he does in the letter, he says he, he ends up describing exactly a program for pretty much the full symphony. And one of the first lines says that the secret of the whole symphony lies in the first thing you hear, which is the fate motive. You'll hear first in uh, horns and bassoons are blasting it together. It's a fanfare. And uh, immediately after that, the, the trumpets take it over on the second repetition. And the idea really, what he's trying to get to is that fate in life has the ultimate word.
Right. And what's really interesting as the as the uh, symphony progresses in the second and the third movement, uh, he, he gets into this uh, mindset that there is a way that you can escape fate, but only temporarily. Mm. And that's through dreams. So the slower parts, the slower movements, if you if you and when you listen to this, if you think, oh, I, I can feel myself dreaming a little bit. This is dreamy music. Uh, it's a really neat escape from the return of that big fanfare. I would say almost every time in the first three movements, when the music gets lighter in spirit, we're talking about a dream-like hmm. state. But then when we look at the the fourth movement, well, at the end of, of the letter, he says, well, if you really cannot find happiness yourself, look at the happiness of others. And he calls it the, the happiness of simple people. And that's one, one of the main themes that you hear throughout the fourth movement is, is really a, a folk song. Of course, the fate theme is going to make one more appearance, interrupting. <laughs> Every time it comes back, it interrupts whatever's happening in the music. And it, it comes in blasting completely unapologetic. Uh, after that, we do look at the happiness of others one more time. And the whole, the whole symphony ends in a very, very, very light spirit. He throws in percussion instruments uh, at, at the end and quite a lot of it. But we all we always have to remember it's happiness, but with with a little twist because it's the happiness of others. I believe some of his final words on that were that uh, if you cannot be happy yourself, at least you can realize that there is happiness and rejoice that others have happiness. You know, he yeah. well, he was is, he was in a dark place. He was definitely not a happy <laughs> camper when he wrote this. Right. But the music has got so much to it, and Radu alluded to this, but. I think the ending of the Tchaikovsky Fourth Symphony is one of the most exciting endings of a symphony I've ever heard. I it, love it. It is. And, and Tchaikovsky is the master of an, of an ending. It's the same in the Fifth <laughs> Symphony. You think, here's the ending, but no. We do it one more time and one more time. And he creates this incredible sense of, of expectation. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's interesting that so much of Tchaikovsky's intended meaning and interpretation is so spelled out in these letters. And the fact that he dedicated the symphony to this benefactor, because this wouldn't at the time have meant some kind of like humble nod to the benefactor, but actually would have signaled like a kind of artistic partnership. Mm -hmm. It was yeah. it was kind of I mean, that relationship between benefactor and an artist still exists today. But I don't know that we would quite go that as far with it with it. <laughs> no, at that time, they considered themselves equals. The, yeah. Nadezhda would have thought herself equal to Tchaikovsky, really, because mm -hmm. they were. And to put things into perspective, it was really Nadezhda von Mack that allowed and made it possible for him to dedicate his full time to composition because he was teaching at the Moscow Conservatory. And after this partnership, sh he was able to to quit his job and dedicate his his full time, his every day, every hour to composition, which is really what he wanted to do. That's what he felt was his mission in life. Mm. And and not to get too much into the weeds here, but what does Tchaikovsky do in the third movement with the strings that's so unusual? Well, he starts strings throughout the movement. Every single note they they play is in pizzicato. And they start very, very, very soft all together. They can even put the bows down if, if they prefer. Sometimes some orchestra is doing with the bows up, or I think both bows down is... is it's less messy. You just, <laughs> yeah. right. And it, it even looks very effective from the audience yes. because well, where are the bows? What, what is happening here? It starts very, very soft, and uh, it has this almost soft carnival spirit 
to it. And every single section in that movement, when the woodwinds come in, they're representing something. He's calling them a, a band of drunk musicians, street musicians. And then when the brass comes in, once again, they're doing a fanfare, but it's a very different kind of fanfare than the one in the, in the beginning. It, it is much, much lighter in spirit. Is this Tchaikovsky symphony one of the many examples throughout history of a piece that's highly regarded today but was not that well received at the time? Well, I think with most Tchaikovsky pieces, uh, he was already very, very, very well respected as a composer. Mm. And I think the way the symphony was received, it had enthusiasm in the beginning. But with every piece, there were also some critics. But it very, very quickly gained its... uh, its reputation, and it has become now one of the war horses of the repertoire that it is performed all the time. Would you consider this maybe the perhaps most well-known or most accessible pieces on this concert? Um, um, Because I'm I'm just thinking about, you can hear this symphony in all kinds of pop culture. A few seconds of it are at the beginning of Pink Floyd's I Wish You Were Here. Um, It's in the the score of that film Birdman from 2014 with Michael Keaton. Um, It was a Shirley MacLaine and Paul Newman film from way back that that heavily relied on this score uh, in, in telling that story. Um, so it's out there. It's something people recognize. It really is. And I would say all three, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth symphony are I- extraordinarily popular and they're being performed. And you, you get references of, of them pretty much anywhere and in pop culture as well. All right. And when it comes to this concert, it, it is just a couple days away now. Um, so there is some limited ticket availability. But Robert, that student rush option, I mean, where else can you hear Gil Shaham? Possibly uh, for a five dollar ticket. I'm telling you, this is the best deal in town. So if uh, you WGCU listeners are out there and your students, any kind of student ID, we're talking, you know, this university, any any place where you're a student, bring your ID to the box office, an hour, half an hour, twenty minutes before the concert starts. Show up. Show your ID. You can get any seat that we've got available for $5. And there's a chance that you might get a $100 seat if we haven't sold it for 5 bucks. So this is called Student Rush. I want you to seriously think about it. 7.30 Saturday night. Come to the box office. Grab a date. Go get a pizza. Come to the show and listen to some classical music for $10 for you and your date. It's a, it is an absolutely terrific deal. So that's one way to get tickets. Of course, the other way is online or call our box office. We've got Uh, just two days left. There are seats still available and tickets start at $47 up in the balcony. Um, so, you know, it's it's time to, to, to make the plan. If we haven't, uh, you know, excited you enough now, um, this is it. All right. Go ahead. I'm sorry. And I would just like to say, as a conductor, I spend so much time by myself with the score. And then we have the time that I spent with the musicians, we're rehearsing the music, but really our favorite moment is when we get the chance to share it with all of you, our audience. So on that note, I, I cannot be more excited to share all this music. Wonderful, with you. wonderful. And Robert, there was something else, a, a promotional code, something that folks should know about? Yes, okay, so we'll just end with this. If you would like to get online or call our box office and want a little discount, I can offer you 15% off a ticket price by using the number 62 or the words 62. We're in our 62nd season at the Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra, so just remember 62. If you want to get online, you just write that out on the uh, 
code box there or call the box office and tell her you want one of your 62 discounts, 15% off your ticket. We'll see you Saturday, I hope. Wonderful. Well, that is all the time we have for today's show, but I want to thank my guests. We've been speaking with Southwest Florida Symphony Orchestra music director and maestro Radu Papanyo and the symphony's community outreach ambassador Robert Van Winkle about this coming Saturday evening's performance featuring guest soloist acclaimed violinist Gil Shaham. And again, secure your tickets by going to swflso.org slash tickets or by calling the box office. Radu and Robert, thanks so much for sharing your insights with us. Thank you for having us back. And if you missed any of today's show, you can always hear episodes in their entirety on our website, wgcu.org slash gcl, or subscribe to our podcast feed wherever you get your podcasts. Our show today was produced by Jared Gonzalez and yours truly. Our director is Richard Chinqui. Our social media coordinator is Tara Calligan. For now, thanks for listening. I'm John Davis. This is WGCU-FM, Fort Myers 90.1, WMKO Marco Island 91.7 FM, NPR for Southwest. Florida.